Exodus chapter 15, we'll look at only two verses this morning, verse 1 and verse 2. Let's read together. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation, my Father's God. And I will exalt him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your blessed word. We thank you that we can trust each and every word within it. And we just pray this morning that our hearts would be open to it. Lord, that your, your spirit will be teaching us your ways and your truths. That we may be able to understand ourselves a bit better this morning. That we would be able to understand you more, Father. That we'd know you more fully. And Father, that we would understand better the path you would have us to take. Help us to submit ourselves under your word. Help us to see how important it is in our lives. And Father, that we would obey each and every precept, principle and word within it. Father, bless us now as we exalt you in this word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned uh, during communion time, I had the opportunity to, uh, to attend a funeral. Um, of an uncle of mine, or second uncle. I'm not sure how, how it all works with those, with those numbering systems these days. But I sat through the funeral and we got to the point where the priest was giving his message. And I often don't look forward to those messages. I don't really find anything uh, constructive about them. Unless the gospel is being shared, I, I get a little bit uh, anxious inside and a bit uh, you know, uh, downhearted sometimes because no, no hope is offered to them other than a very bland sort of thing, you know, that God loves everyone. But this priest started actually explaining a few things and he, and he, and he started off actually quite on a good, uh, good note. He actually looked at everyone in the face and he actually said, see that coffin there? He said, one day we'll all be in a box like that. I thought, that's quite bold. And then he started talking about how important it was to make the most of our lives. How, how, how time was short and that one day we would stand before God's judgment throne. How's that for a sermon? And I was starting to get excited with all this. I thought, where's he going with it? Where's he going to take it? Now he's got the perfect opportunity. The doors open. He had 200 or more souls over there who didn't know their left hand from their right when it came to the good of God. And then he said, I'll finish up with this. Therefore... It's important for us to do good works. It's important for us that we help the poor. It's important for us that we help each other and we love each other because in the end we're going to stand before God's throne. And I thought to myself, oh, what a lost opportunity. What a fruit that died on the vine, that he had a wonderful opportunity at that point to explain why that man was dead in that box. To explain to them the sin that has cursed the world and that is because of our own sin that, that we will one day have to stand before God's judgment throne. And no matter how many good works there are that we could do, they'll never make up for those, those sins. He didn't explain the sin 
to them. He didn't leave them with a sense of, of, of desperation that the Philippian jailer felt when they explained his desperate state and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? No, there was none of that. He simply said that God loves everyone and wants everyone to do good works. What a lost opportunity. But had he mentioned that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that he was the only way to the Father, and if they didn't put their faith and their trust in him, there would be no standing before God's throne. Because you can't stand before God's throne when you're heap of sin. These poor people had no understanding of their own state. They left that place the same as they went in. They left that place no, with no more knowledge than when they first started. Sure, they, they might have been pricked in their conscience to do more good works. But in the end, it just doesn't add up. We live in spiritual Egypt today. The reason I've got these particular verses, or these two verses, I'd like us to, to look at that miracle that was, that was done when the Egyptians, when, sorry, when the Israelites left Egypt and they were trapped with the sea in front of them and Pharaoh behind them. And I want us to understand that we live in an Egypt today. See, the spirit of Egypt hasn't, uh, hasn't gone away. The spirit of Egypt is still happy and living among us. We were living in spiritual Egypt, spiritual Babylon. And some of us have been freed from that. But we live, in, we live and interact, we converse with people who are every day trapped in that that spiritual Egypt, that bondage. And they have no idea that we actually exist, us and them, in two different spiritual realms. They live under the bondage of the God of this world, the spiritual Pharaoh of the ages, who has the world under his dominion, as it were, and they scarcely see it. Oh, there may come from time to time inklings that there's something wrong with the human condition. But generally they don't see it. The world, as we see it, marches lockstep in a particular direction. And it's a bit like that North Korean leader when you see those images on TV where he's waving to the crowds from up on high and you see thousands and thousands of people all marching in the same direction. They're all doing that. All happily going where we don't want them to go. Then there are those who have sought salvation through the blood of the Lamb, who have called upon Him and have received Him as their Lord and Saviour and have been released and freed from the bondage of this world, from the sin that plagued them and from the penalty of that sin because that penalty was paid for. But there are times we find us who have been freed where we face a sea in front of us. Where Pharaoh's armies are right behind us. And sometimes we feel a little bit fearful. We don't know which way to go. We know that Egypt will attempt to drag us back to the lifestyle that we once lived. 
He will seek with all his might to destroy us or to drag us back and make us ineffective. Seeking once again to blind us and to bind us in Egypt's enticements. So we look in front and we see FC. And we think, how am I going to get through this? What will become of us? Do we capitulate? Do we give up? Do we allow the temptations, the trials, our own inherent weaknesses, the flesh, do we allow it to overcome us? Too many Christians give up the race. Too many Christians leave the fight. The fighting is pretty hard sometimes. Why is there so much weakness in Christianity today? Well, there are a few reasons for the spiritual state of Christians these days. The first I would submit to you is a, a continuing unwillingness to let go of the world. Most Christians want to have it both in their hands. They want the Lord. They want to be called Christians, the children of God. They want to do that. But at the same time, they don't want to get let go of this. They know that those two things are not compatible. Now, I'm not talking about you know, enjoying a game of football or, or going down to you know, enjoy a park or something like that. But there are things in this world that you know will trap you, that you know are designed to entice, to seduce, and to finally enslave. And we see the enslavement around us all every day. But Christians are drawn to that as well. We still have a flesh that we struggle with. But there is a continuing unwillingness on our part to part with worldly temptations. And that boils down to the fact that we often struggle to surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. We struggle with that. We would rather make our own choices, find our own paths. It's easier to make choices based on what I can see and what I can't see. So we tend to waver between living by faith and living by sight. And we play this game where the pendulum swings from left to right. True discipleship requires that we would deny ourselves, that we would sacrifice on a daily basis this body, that we would live for him with everything that we do. The other problem that we have as Christians is that we see that dry, barren climate around us. This world has traps that we cannot even imagine. The devil's schemes and his devices, he has been able to, to work and to improve and to forge through the times of a thousand years and more. He's been around for a very long time. He knows the weaknesses of men and he uses those weaknesses against men. The time we see at the moment is a very difficult time when it comes to true faith. Most have abandoned, as, I've, as I tend to preach over and over again, what we see around in our churches today, and I, when I say our churches, I'm talking about Baptist churches, but I say churches that may have been strong 10 years ago or 20 years ago, we see a denial of God's word as the foundation for their crumbling. We see they de they've denied the word of God and instead they've turned to the philosophy of men and marketing and everything else that, that comes along with this modern society that we live in, and we find them slowly decaying. Jesus says, you know, when I return, shall I find faith? 
The answer to that is quite obvious. When he returns for us, he won't find faith. We live in a very dry and barren age. And the church is also caught up in it. The other thing is that we have seas of doubt and, and seemingly unsurmountable obstacles before us. No sooner that you fix up one thing or you conquer one thing, there seems to be a myriad of other problems and things in front of you. And sometimes we just get downhearted with all the things that we see wrong around us. And we think, where do I start, Lord? And most of those problems are in here, not out there. Because if we would fix what was in here, then the things out there would seem actually quite small and insignificant. But we struggle with in here, the battle that rages in here and in here, with my desires and my thoughts. But the Bible tells us that what's impossible with man is possible with God. And God actually promises us that we can have victory in our lives. So even though there may seem a myriad of problems in front of you, within you, and behind you. Brother Allen gave an interesting uh, illustration the other week, where he said, how do, you eat, how do you eat an elephant? And the answer to that is one bite at a time. Even though the elephant looks big, why don't you slice them up into steaks, <laughs> okay? You can, you can cook him quite easily. Yeah, sure, it'll take you a while to go through him, but you do it one step at a time. And this is how we need to progress with our own lives. You see, we, God knows we can only take one step at a time. The Bible does not say to jump ahead of you. The Bible says to walk in the, in the truth. The Bible says even to run the race of faith. The Bible doesn't say that I have to get pole vault to get to the next place simply says for me to take one step at a time at a pace that I can endure that will take me the furthest that I can go. And God promises the strength to endure that race till the end. And that's what it boils down to in the end. We struggle with our faith, isn't it? Most of the, reason, the real reason that we struggle with sin and with temptations and trials and, and things that go wrong get us down so often when they really shouldn't is that we lack faith in God. We lack faith. Because if we had real faith, our anxieties would be a whole lot less. Because we trust that God has everything under control. Instead, we want to meddle in everything that, that goes on. We want to uh, play God's role or the Holy Spirit's role. If we would trust God and we would do the basics of what God tells us, we'll find this walk is actually quite simple. Jesus tells us to give our burdens to him and take on his yoke because his yoke is easy and light. How many of us actually believe that? Do you really believe it? Or as you sit here this morning, you think, man, that, that burden that you gave me, that yoke that you gave me, not even an, an ox could actually hold that. Do some of you believe that, that Jesus was lying? No. The truth of the matter is that we haven't taken his yoke. If we struggle with, uh, with life, the truth is that yoke is our own. And this just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. 
And we won't hand it over to God because we're scared about what he's going to give to us. So it boils down to faith. And I don't want to focus on our weaknesses today or shortcomings. We know we have plenty of them. But I want to focus on the power of God this morning and his salvation as we look through this passage today, as we parallel what happened at that sea with our own salvation. And I want us to see the wonderful picture that it paints for us and the hope that we can have in our own lives now. You see, we're in this transition period. Transition is a a scary word, isn't it? Companies go through transitions, people go through transitions, but change is never an easy thing. You see, we've been through, we've, we've lived a lifestyle where we're in the world, and then all of a sudden we made a choice to accept Christ as our Saviour, and now we're in this middle section, neither fully, fully glorified or in the world, but God is actually working with us in a progressive way, growing us, helping develop. We're in a transition phase. But as I've said, it's the scariest place to be sometimes, to be changing. And when God says, all right, now you've completed this, I want you to do this. And we go, oh, I thought it was all over. I thought I'd done all the important stuff, all the hard stuff. And God says, no, I want you to take the next step. Because in order for me to glorify, in order for, for me to be glorified through you now properly, you need to take the next step. In order for you to mature more, you need to now take that next step. And sometimes we shirk, we shy away from where God wants to be and we make reasons in our minds and we give excuses for why we can't be that faithful. Surely God can't, can't expect me to be faithful all the time. Yes, he can. And you can. Let's look at the background of this thing, of this passage. It says that, well, let me give you a bit of a background with it before we look at that passage again. The Lord had visited ten plagues upon Egypt, the last one being the worst, where he killed the firstborn of Egypt's Egypt's sons. The Passover had occurred and the angel of death had, had gone through Egypt and done its work. And the Israelites had been told to, to slaughter a lamb, to eat it that night, to mark their doorpost with that blood. And when the angel saw that blood on their doorpost, it passed over that house. Actually, I learned something interesting the other day, which didn't dawn on me before, that, thanks Hayden, um, that it's one of those religious uh, feasts that God asks his people to do that it doesn't matter whether you were defiled or, uh, or not defiled, God expects you to do it. Do you understand that? The angel of death passed over in a household with defiled and undefiled people. They were all called to, get to be part of that thing. The defiled were not thrown out or left outside to die. God had called in those who have problems, who have sinned, because anyone who has faith in that blood can be saved. God doesn't need you to clean up your act before you come to the Lord. God calls you as you are to come to the Lord and let him do the cleaning. So God had forced Pharaoh to let Israel go and to release them from over about 400 years of bondage. But no sooner had Israel left Egypt, their faith was tested again. But as with all all tests of faith, God has an opportunity to glorify himself and, 
reveal his power. Turn, to, turn back to Exodus chapter 14, verse 9. But the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamping by the sea beside uh, Pehahiroth, before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. And they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt with us uh, this with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians, and we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye seem seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. Thou, but lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I... Behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honour upon Pharaoh, and upon all his host, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. When Pharaoh had let the Israelites go, he had a second thought. He looked at his loss. He lost all his workforce. These guys were doing all the building, all the hard labouring. He had lost his workforce and sensing that loss, he decided to go and chase them down and to bring them back. Israel, surrounded by wilderness with nowhere to go, blocked by a sea in front of them, the Red Sea. Not a wadi, not a small stream. A sea. It was obvious they couldn't cross this sea. But the interesting thing here is they, even, they didn't even have the faith to match their cry to God. Because actually it says they cried to the Lord okay, to save them. And then what did they do? They turned on Moses and said, We told you, why didn't you leave us alone to stay back there in Egypt? So they preferred at that point, they'd just gotten saved, but they preferred to have stayed back in Egypt because, you know something, when you're looking at death and you've got no faith, Death is very scary. You'd rather be going back to the world and eating those onions and garlic and everything else they had over there. We told you, Moses, why did you bring us here to kill us? So their faith even wasn't there. But in verse 14 it says, The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel, they go forward. Which way do we go? There's only one way to go, and that's forward. How do, you, how do we go forward when you see a sea in front of you? Yet God says, start walking. You know, if God tells you to go forward, and that road looks blocked to you, what do you do? 
you go forward. Because by faith, the door will open for you. The sea will part for you. The way will be made for you. If God calls you to do anything in your life, and even if it looks impossible, don't walk backwards. Don't stand still. Walk forward. And you'll see the power of God in your life. Israel discovered that. Look at verse 16. But lift thou up thy right and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will get me honour upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, upon his chariots and upon his horsemen. When Moses obeyed the Lord and rose that, uh, that staff that he had, the sea divided, and Israel passed on dry ground, which would seem absolutely impossible, wouldn't it? Surely they would have passed on soggy sand. But it was dry ground. God can do the impossible from our perspective. The Lord glorified himself through the absolute weakness of his people. Did you understand what happened? His people were absolutely weak and hopeless. They had no way of saving themselves. All they had was an opportunity to give in and give up. But God glorifies himself in our weaknesses. When you think that all is lost and you put your faith in God, you know who gets the glory? He does. Because when he shows you that way, when he provides the means and gives you the grace, he gets the glory. And God totally defeated the armies of Egypt. They never again recovered from that particular event to become a world power. And for us who have left the sin of this world and have been saved by the power of God, this story or this song should resonate with us because a song of triumph sung by Moses speaks of the victory of God. It speaks of God's triumph, not ours, not Israel's. It speaks of God's triumph. And the fact that our Lord and our Saviour won an incredible triumph and victory when he died on that cross. When he lived that perfect life, when he became that spotless lamb who would pay for the sins of the world. I'm telling you that triumph at the Red Sea crossing was nothing compared to what Christ did for us at the cross. Sure, it looked spectacular. Imagine walking through, through walls of water. But what was done for this world at Calvary far exceeded that miracle. song of triumph sung by Moses praises God for his salvation and we have a lot more reason to sing today and it says in 15 uh, chapter 15 verse 1 then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord and spake saying I will sing unto the Lord and then it says he hath triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. And this, I want to look at a couple of things the Lord's done for us. What's the Lord done for us? Well, in this particular passage, he destroyed the armies of Egypt in one master stroke. When Moses lifted up his staff, the waters parted and Israel was able to be saved through the sea. Now Moses lifted up a piece of wood, his staff, his rod, and the waters parted and Israel was saved. 
Do you know he was lifted up for us? On a piece of wood? Jesus Christ was lifted up. And because of his obedience, God made a way for us from where we were, trapped, with no hope, he made a pathway for us to get to heaven. The only path. And Christ's blood pays for our sin. And the Bible says that he became the way. That, that dry ground that Israelites walked on, is our, he is our dry ground that we walk on. We can trust every footing that we put in front, one step after another, because he is our foundation. And he will never disappoint. Imagine you, you were an Israelite right now. And imagine as you walked. Well, imagine maybe like this, this hall. But the walls were water. And they were staying up there. Tell me, what would you feel? What would you feel as you walked in, in the middle of those, in the middle of that sea, and you saw mighty walls of water on both sides of you, would you be a little bit scared? I would. I'd be scared. I'd be fearful. I think my knees would be shaking as I was walking. I think there was much fear and trembling as they, as they walked down that path. Now consider the awe that we as children of God should have with each and every step we take as we consider the walls of sin that God has pushed aside that were ours and God has made a way through that sin that we might get to him. Every step we take we should do it with fear and trembling because there are many who will be lost who will not make it across who never take that journey who never saw that path who were still back in Egypt. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptised unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. By faith, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, we were baptised into him. And that baptism that we celebrate, we call ourselves Baptists. Because we baptise by immersion, we baptise fully under the water, and we only do with people who have put their faith in Christ, because it's a picture of what's happened to us spiritually. We have immersed ourselves in Christ, and it says here that the Israelites, when they walked through that sea, were baptised into Moses. In other words, they chose to follow Moses, they chose to obey, and we have chosen to obey Christ. And not only that, but consider this, that the armies of Satan would have rejoiced to have seen the Son of God crucified and put to shame, wouldn't they? Isn't that what Satan was working for? To get Christ dead and buried? To kill him? To get the people that he came to save to destroy him and to kill him? Yes, the armies of Satan were happy for that to have occurred. But had Satan known what was coming, he wouldn't have done it. Had he known what would have happened on the third day, he wouldn't have followed them. Had Pharaoh known that if he had chosen, when he chose to, to chase those Israelites in the middle of those walls of water, if he had known the results, do you think Pharaoh would have chased? No. 
Yet on that third day, the armies of Satan were defeated. Satan was fully defeated on that third day. The day when the Son of God walked out of that tomb and proclaimed victory over Satan and over death as well. That's what the Lord's done for us. Something more miraculous, more spectacular than any parting of the Red Sea. Now who is the Lord for us? This victory isn't just a one-time event that should be forgotten. And, and I mean, this victory that Christ won for us on the cross isn't something that we just look at and say, oh, see, that, that's what happened to me or that, what he did 2,000 years ago. Or that's what happened to me when I was saved in 1993. You know, I gave my heart to the Lord and that was it. No. That message of the Red Sea, that message that God parted is one that God can do for us every day. Because it's, the obstacles in our way don't finish when we, first, when we first get saved. It's the beginning of the walk. And God can continue to fight for us. The challenge for us is that we should remember that when we face life challenges and the temptations of sin and the obstacles, that the Lord is always ready to provide a way for us. And he's ready to fight for us. Look what it says here. Well, who is the Lord to us? It says in verse 2 of chapter 15, The Lord is my strength. When we feel weak and we don't know where to turn, when the temptations seem too great for us, we should always know that the Lord is right there with us and is always a source of strength to us. And it's not just a source of strength when we, when we need it, but a strength that empowers us and enables us to fight. When we have no strength of our own at all. Part of the problem that we have as Christians is that we, often too, we too often rely on our own strength to fight the battle. It's too many times we do this. We play the game where we fall back on our own wisdom and our own knowledge and our own strength. And then we pretend that we can fight this battle and then when things start getting rough and our energy runs out, our wisdom fails, our knowledge isn't there, that we fall down, that we fall or we fail. But Jesus tells Paul, the Apostle Paul, he says, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Then am I strong. This should be our, our understanding of ourselves. When we reach a point where we say, I can't do this, God. That's when God can reveal his power to us. That's when God glorifies himself. Well, how do I access his power? Well, simply like this. It's understanding that you and I stand in front of a Red Sea each and every day. We stand in front of a Red Sea, something that we cannot win ourselves. And the enemy continues to close. The enemy would have us destroyed. Satan hasn't stopped trying to attack us. So we find ourselves at that point that the Israelites did every day of our lives. The question is... Will you walk forward? Will you understand that you can't do it in your own strength? 
Will you trust him with all your heart? Because we can. God is our strength. But until we realise that we are weak, until we admit that we are weak, then our pride would have us try to conquer those victories by ourselves. But it's every day that we face that mountain. It's every day. And it's every day that we need the grace of God. You see, the Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith. Correct? We all believe that. But many Christians leave that grace at Calvary's cross and don't rely on that grace for their daily walk. If I understood that I need him just as much as when I needed him to save me from, from hell, if, if we don't understand that principle, if we don't preach the gospel to ourselves each and every day and understand that we are in need of God's grace every step we take, that I need to rely on him, but that relying and that grace comes through faith, through trusting him. That has to happen every day. You can't leave the grace of God back at Calvary when you were first saved how many years ago. You need God's grace every day. I like the way one, one author put it. I think he said, you are, you are never good enough that you don't need the grace of God. Okay? You will never be good enough or strong enough or, or wise enough in your life that you don't need the grace of God. You will need it every day. And he also says, you are never bad enough that you will be beyond the grace of God. We sway between those two things. Often we think of ourselves either that we know too much or we, we say we're too far from the grace of God and God can't do anything with me. And we play with that between those two, those two sides. We need to understand two things. That God never forsakes his children. Doesn't matter where you find yourself today, God's grace can still reach you and work with you and save you. And doesn't matter how good you think you've got it, you still need to rely on God's grace. The Lord is our strength. Moses then says, the Lord is our song. Our song. You know, I don't know if you watched the football last night. There was a football game that was on last night. I didn't watch all of it. I watched probably about 15 minutes of it. It was a complete disaster for one side. And the other side at the end of the game sang a song. The ones that won sang a song. The ones that lost walked back into, the, into the, uh, the rooms, the change rooms, the locker rooms or whatever it was. They weren't singing at all. Why do we sing? Why do people sing? Well, there are a few reasons people sing. You can sing because you you're rejoicing about something. Or you're singing to lift up your spirits. To lift you, to lift you up when things are a little, getting a little bit scared. Or a little bit scary. We have a lot to sing about. We have a lot to sing about. Christians should be the most singingest people in the world. We should, you know. That's not, I know that's not a word. I just made it up. We can sing as we march. We have a lot to rejoice about. We have a lot to be happy about. The joy that we have should, should be greater than anyone else in the world. And even though times might be hard and, and, and you might be facing certain things, you know something? You and I have more than this people in this world could even ever imagine. We have been given a gift so precious that no one can even measure it. But often we live like paupers. Often we live as if we've got nothing. 
and the first thing that comes along that ruins our day, it's a complete disaster. There's a lot more to our lives. We have a lot more to sing about. You know, we sing many hymns, and each of those hymns is a focus, isn't it? You know, each of those hymns you know, might be focused on the ascension of Christ or it might be focused on you know, uh, faithfulness or Christian living or godliness. Or, or... But you know something? You know all those hymns that we sing? You know what the one major theme in the whole lot of them is? There's one thing that goes through the whole lot. It's Jesus Christ. He is the major theme for every hymn that we sing. He is the one that focuses. And the Bible... In a major theme from the Bible, from beginning to end, there's one theme in here, and that's our Lord and our Saviour. It speaks about him from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation. What's your song about today? I've got a good theme for you, if you want to sing a song. And it says, finally, the Lord is our salvation. What occurred at the cross, as I've said, is much greater than the crossing of the Red Sea. What happened at the cross was a door through which a man can walk and find justification in the sight of God. What happens between that point and when we're glorified is growth, is a transition period. But salvation is almost a three-stage process, isn't it? God saves us from hell to heaven then he's, he's saving us in terms of our growing as well during our lives. And then finally, the, the salvation process for God is to finally glorify us and to give us new bodies and eradicate the body of sin that we still have. Yes, salvation, you receive salvation at one point, but God's managed to, to deliver in three stages for us. And we find ourselves in the middle stage. God is our salvation. What will I do? Let me give you just a couple of things that, I will, that we should do as Christians. Moses says, I will acknowledge that he alone is my God. He is my God. There's a hymn that we sing, it's called Blessed Assurance. And it says, Blessed, one passage says, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Do you know who wrote that? Fanny Crosby. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. There is something very special in the life of a Christian that separates us or makes us very different from everyone else. It's that Jesus has become our personal possession. He's mine, mine. That's why why Moses can say, my God. Jesus is my personal possession. I am his and he is mine. Just like a marriage. You know when two people give each other in marriage? they, They give to each other. The Christian relationship with our Lord and our Saviour is like that. You see, we've become betrothed to him. We are betrothed to Jesus. And one day we'll be together with him. The disciples going to Emmaus had this. Paul the Apostle had this. The disciples had this meeting or this this coming together with Christ after the resurrection. 
Jesus tells us in, uh, in John chapter 17, verse 3, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. This is why the Bible tells us that we must receive Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. You need to receive him. You can't just acknowledge him in your head. You need to receive him in your heart. And from then on, it's a personal relationship that you have with him. I will acknowledge him, that he's mine. So you want to help conquer sin? You want to conquer sin in your life? Have a personal relationship with Christ and live it. Speak with him. Be with him. Follow him. Do all you can with him and for him. Don't neglect him. And then he says, I will prepare an habitation. What does that mean, prepare an habitation? A house for God. Now the Israelites may have been speaking about the tabernacle or the temple that was to come. But I'll tell you what the Bible says about the tabernacle of God now. Do you know where God lives? In here. Now let me ask you a question this morning. How prepared is your tabernacle for your saviour? How prepared is, is your home? Because the Bible says that God lives in you. If you've accepted and received Christ in your heart, then he lives in you, literally lives in you, through his Holy Spirit. Now he's living in there, and the, the scripture says, he will prepare him an habitation. How prepared is your home? When you prepare your own home, when you look at your own home, don't you have it decked out exactly the way you want inside? Or some of you might, might be saying, no, my home is not looking the way I want at the moment. But you, you prepare your home inside the way you like. You do it so it's comfortable to you. You do it and you have things around your home that are pleasing in your sight, that are comfortable, that make, your, that you make your home comfortable and safe and whatever else it is. But let me ask you a question. This home here, how prepared is that for your saviour? How does that look for him? How much junk have you got in there? How is it? How much sin is stored in there still that you haven't gotten rid of? How many good things are in there for him? How is your home this morning? How prepared is your home for your saviour? Or is it neglected? Are the weeds growing all over the place? Is it dirty? Is it? And you expect your saviour to live in there. Prepare your heart for your saviour. And remember that wherever you go, you bring him with you. Wherever you go, you bring him with you. Whatever your eyes see, he sees. Whatever your ears hear, he hears. Tell me what you're subjecting him to. What do you make him see? What do you cause him to hear? In what house do you cause him to live in? And finally it says, Moses says, I will exalt him. Moses says, I will exalt him. You know, praising God and exalting God in our lives increases our faith. It rightly puts my focus on him. He's the focus. He's the source of all my joy. When I exalt him, you know who I forget about? Me. Because I'm not number one. I'm not even number two, three, four or five. He's number one. He's everything. 
when I focus, when I lift him up in praise, when I exalt him in my life, when all I seek to do is to, is to lift up he, the knowledge of him to people around me by the life that I live, that's exalting him. When we truly praise God, we grow as people. The devil finds it hard to work with praising people. Sin can't do its, its job very well. Sin can't break in when I'm in the middle of praising my Saviour. Because if my focus and my eyes are upon him, then it's not on this. And it's not on this, on everything around me. When I see heaven in front of my eyes, the world pales into insignificance for me. If we fail to worship God, then we rob him of his glory and rob ourselves of growth and joy. Do you exalt God in your life? Do you exalt him? When you sing hymns, do you actually mean the words that you sing? Think about it. If you read the hymns that we sing, they are quite scary. Because the things that we say in those hymns, we often don't live up to. Each one of those hymns is a challenge to each of us. And we often sing them a little bit too flippantly. And I'll put my hand up as well. Often we'll sing hymns and we, we enjoy the hymn, but we haven't thought about too much about the words that we've sung. We should be careful about how we sing. We should be careful about the way we exalt God. We exalt God by our lives, when we sing hymns, when we pray. When you pray, do you just create a list of things to say or things to ask for? How much time do you spend, exalt, spend exalting him in your prayers? How much time do you, do you spend in your prayers praising him for who he is and for what he's done? Let me close. The Christian must never imagine that now that he has left the world and sins allurement, we will have an easy road ahead. We won't. But as we read the story of God's triumph over the Egyptian army, as we read the great triumph that was won for us at Calvary, it should encourage us to take that next step forward. Always remember that we need the grace of God for each step we take. Let's remember who he is. Remember that he is our strength, our song, our salvation. And remember what we are to do. We are to acknowledge him as ours, our personal possession, and we are his. We are to be prepared for him and habitation, and we are to exalt him in our lives. If you follow those things, those six simple points, you will have a victorious life. You will. The question is, how many of those are you willing to do? How much are you willing to do? If there is anyone here who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, let me be very plain and clear to you this morning. I'm not going to mince words. My name's Frank and I'll, I'll try to be frank as often as I can. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Saviour, you are trapped in Egypt right now. You are under bondage with your sin. And one day, whether it's today or tomorrow, you will pay for your sin. You will have to give an account. 
And you know something? There's only one place that God has created for you, the payment of that sin. That's a place that he calls hell. And it's a place that's terrible. I can't imagine how bad it actually is. But imagine a place that's total darkness, that it's unimaginable pain and torment, and you are all alone forever with no chance of escape. Can you afford to go there? Can you afford to keep that sin that you have to pay that price at the end? If you don't have Christ, that's what you have to face. God has made one path. Just as God made one path through that Red Sea, God has made one path to get to heaven. And that means you've got to go through a cross. You've got to be washed in some blood that was spilled on that cross. You have to accept what was done for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have him in your heart today, please come and see me. You don't know, like that, those poor people that, or that lady that died in that car accident. Please, you don't know if you will live to another day. You may not get here next week. In which case you'll have to face eternity by yourself. Come and speak to one of us, please. Now is the day of salvation. God bless you. Thank you.